Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. So hello everyone and thank you for tuning in to the Dementia Research podcast, where we discuss careers, science and research into dementia. This week, we're exploring the role of the ubiquitin proteasome system in dementia and some of the wonderful research that's been undertaken by our far guest today. I'm delighted to be guest hosting today's show. And if I can start by just introducing myself, my name is Selena Ray. I'm a professor of molecular neuroscience at University College London. And my own research is focused on understanding the molecular mechanisms that lead to Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia, particularly using patient-derived stem cell models. And I'm really excited about today's topic because it's very relevant to the um, research that's going on in my own lab. So I'm delighted to be joined today by far experts in the ubiquitin proteasome system in dementia. So from Imperial College London, I'm delighted to welcome Emma Mihays, Danny Pulgar-Prieto and Lena Servio, and they are joined today by Georgie Lines, who's from University College London. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today, and I thought we could maybe just start by some quick introductions. So, Emma, could I hand over to you and ask you to introduce yourself? Sure. So, hi, everyone, everybody listening. My name is Emma Hayes, and I'm a postdoc uh, at the UEA lab in Imperial College London. And my research is mainly focused on uh, using super resolution microscopy to look at the proteasome in also induced derived pluripotent stem cells. Fantastic. Thank you. Danny, can I hand over to you? Yes. Hi, um, I am a PhD student, also in Dr. Yudia's lab at Imperial. Um, I started my research career at Stony Brook after I graduated from biochemistry. And since then, I've been looking at um, immune pathways in cancer, like solid, solid and hematological cancers. Um, however, last year, I, was, um, I had the opportunity to join Dr. Yi's lab to also study um, immune pathways, but in a um, neurodegenerative context. Fantastic. We need more people to come to new degeneration. So it's great that you're bringing your skills and your talent to us. Uh, Lena, can I ask you to introduce yourself, please? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, I'm Lena Sirvio. Uh, I'm also a first year uh, PhD student in the Yi Lab at Imperial. Uh, I have been London based since I started my undergrad. So I've been at King's in Imperial um, for bachelor's and master's. I was also a uh, technician at the Crick for a year before starting this PhD. Uh, and so I also uh, came from a somewhat similar background of working out either on unfolded protein response or uh, kinases in the brain, so post-translational modifications. Fantastic, thank you. And last but by certainly no means least, Georgie, can I hand over to you? Hi, uh, yeah. Thank you for having me on the podcast today. Um, so my name is Georgie Lyons and I'm a PhD student at UCL. I'm currently in my third year out of four, and it's gone really, really fast so far. Um, my PhD project is centered around investigating tau proteostasis in induced pluripotent stem cell models of frontal temporal dementia. And it sounds super nerdy when I say it out loud, but I just think that the ubiquitin proteasome system is super interesting and so obviously important in neurodegenerative diseases. So I'm really excited for our chat today. Amazing. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, before we, I'm really excited to hear about your individual research projects and the different techniques that you're using. 
But I thought before we get into kind of the details, it might be useful for any listeners who aren't familiar with the ubiquitin proteasome to just do a bit of scene setting and maybe give some very brief and basic introductions so that we're all on the same page. So I wonder if anybody would like to take on the challenge of giving us a very brief introduction to the ubiquitin proteasome system and what it does in the cell. I'll take that one. It's a pretty complicated system, so I'll try and like boil it down into two, two three sentences. So our cells produce proteins, and eventually these proteins get old or they get misfolded. So the cell has to figure out some way to get rid of them or deal with them. So the ubiquitin proteasome system will tag different proteins that are, as I said, old, damaged, misfolded, which is obviously a feature of neurodegenerative diseases, misfolded proteins, will tag them so that they can de get degraded by the proteasome system. Is kind of so it's a way of thinking, I suppose, like the garbage disposal of the cell. And the way they do this is they tag these proteins with a protein called ubiquitin. So if something's got a ubiquitin tag, it should be degraded. And that'll probably be like a debate we get into if it actually is degraded, then in neurodegenerative diseases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's essentially kind of what it should do in a normal cell. Um, so I hope that kind of explains it. That's perfect. I wonder if I could follow up just with a little bit more detail. And Anyone can feel free to chip on this. I'm obviously directing it a little bit at Emma at the moment, but what's doing the tagging and how do you, how does a cell know when to tag something? So if something becomes misfolded or as I said, like it becomes damaged in any way by like reactive oxygen species, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The cell will use a series of different enzymes to actually tag this protein. So it's the ubiquitin ligases, so like the E1, 2 and 3 enzymes. So eventually these will kind of in an enzymatic escape tag proteins relative for uh, degradation. Super, thank you. Um, and so why is this so important in neurodegenerative diseases? Maybe I can bring Georgie in to, to comment on that. What, why is the ubiquitin proteasome kind of a focus of investigation in Alzheimer's disease and other, other neurodegenerative diseases? Well, the main reason that um, the ubiquitin ubiquitin proteasome system is being um, more heavily researched at the moment in um, neurodegeneration fields is because the majority of neurodegenerative diseases, so for example, Alzheimer's disease or frontal temporal dementia, can be pathologically characterized by the accumulation of misfolded proteins. So um, with frontal temporal dementia, for example, you get the accumulation of hyperphosphorylated insoluble tau, which actually is not being um, broken down or cleared by the proteasome system. So this is really implicating uh, a fault in the, in the UPS pathway um, in, in disease. And not only uh, do you get the accumulation of these uh, disease relevant proteins, but some of these accumulations also have a ubiquitin in their aggregates as well. So it is another indicator that the ubiquitin proteasome system is at fault um, in neurodegenerative diseases. Fantastic. And I think also it's been really interesting in the past few years, certainly in tauopathy and in, in kind of progressive supranuclear palsy. Um, the, the genome-wide association studies that have been performed in those diseases have also highlighted um, some of the components of this pathway. So I'm thinking of the TRIM11 locus, and that for me is, is really important because it starts to indicate that, you know, this pathway really is central to the disease pathogenesis. And that kind of brings me on to my next question. Um, 
which is kind of a hard one, but I'd love to hear your opinions on it. And is it seems to me that there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation going on in neurodegeneration. So we have these unfolded proteins. We know that the ubiquitin proteasome system would normally break down those proteins. And yet I do we know what order things start to go wrong? Is the ubiquitin proteasome system faulty because it's just overwhelmed by these protein aggregates? Or do these protein aggregates exist because the ubiquitin proteasome breaks down? Does anybody want to, to chip in and comment on that? Um, so from the literature, um, there are publications that say that um, the ubiquitin proteasome system is overwhelmed by these aggregates and these the system is no longer able to degrade them. So that's definitely there in the, in the literature. However, there are other publications that mention uh, mutations in the proteasome subunit. I wanna say PSMB2, uh, but don't quote me on that one. Um, and that these mutations actually um, break down or slow down the, the pro ubiquitin proteasome system. And that's what's causing the um, accumulation of a lot of proteins, including these, for example, tau aggregates. So I think, I think it's not exclusive. Like it's just individual, uh, depending on the case, like in the individual uh, case of the patient. So it can either be the breakdown of the proteasome system or the mutation in, for example, tau that causes it to aggregate in a certain way that clogs the proteasome system. Yeah. Uh, if I can just add on to that, oh, yeah, please do. Uh, another aspect uh, that I'll at least be talking about later on as well is that it might also be that post-translational modifications, not just mutations, uh, make uh, these proteins more prone to aggregation. And so that's kind of uh, what my research also focuses on is uh, does the, the specific type of modification speed up the aggregation and then form this kind of insoluble uh, aggregate that's resistant to degradation and then that inhibits the proteasome system or is uh, potentially there's types of modifications that uh, perhaps aren't as uh, well recognized by the proteasome uh, and so the, 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 this might just kind of uh, proceed from a few different angles uh, in that sense in, in terms of whether the modifications uh, lead to the aggregates or whether they, they, the aggregate formation actually inhibits the proteasome as well. Brilliant. Thank you. So it's really complicated, I think, is the take home message from that. And, you know, I think it's, you know, those initial questions, you've done a fantastic job at kind of showcasing the complexity of the system, but also its elegance. And I think sometimes I think a lot about these quality control systems and, you know, although we are often ask the question, why do things go wrong? Why do we get these protein aggregates? When we think about how um, complex these systems are, I think it's a miracle it doesn't happen more often, to be honest, that we manage to have these super complexes in the cells that just function so well um, for so long. Um, so it would be great to maybe hear a little bit more about your individual research projects and kind of in this complicated system, what specifically each of you are looking at. Um, so Emma, maybe I can come back to you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, your research? And I know that you're particularly interested in using a technique called super resolution microscopy. Um, so again, maybe you could first of all tell us what that is, um, particularly for any listeners who might not have heard of it before. So super resolution, so first of all, I'll say what I'm actually looking at and then why I'm using super resolution microscopy. So put the chicken before the egg there. 
so what I'm currently using is actually I'm also using uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. So for anyone who doesn't know, these are patient-derived cells that we make into stem cells, which I then make into neurons, which I use then as a model for neurodegenerative diseases. And so what we want to do is we want to fluorescently tag the proteasome in these cells and then use live cell microscopy to study the effect of hyperpolarization or inflammation or aggregate induction or any kind of pathological kind of effect on our, on our proteasome and does that affect its localization or its activity or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason that we're using super resolution microscopy is that obviously compared to say something like just like your standard fluorescence, it allows us to look at a single molecule level, what these proteasomes are doing and how they're then interacting with each other. And I think for the proteasome, that's critically important because we can then see how it's interacting with say something like the cytoskeleton or specifically how it's mm. interacting with, pro we can add in tau fibrils, alpha-synuclein fibrils, or just protein aggregate. Uh, in general, or block them specifically, so we can see on a strictly molecular level what effect that's having using super resolution microscopy. That's fascinating. And I guess it's something that I actually don't know the answer to, but I think about neurons as being these, they have this really complex morphology and these long axons. Mm -hmm. Are the proteasomes everywhere in a neuron? So I think this is a really interesting question. It's definitely something that like, I personally am very interested in because obviously neurons are not just like a bag. They've got a very, very uh, kind of extreme morphology. And so there is some, some people showing that they're very, very concentrated at the synapse, which makes sense to kind of clear up neurotransmitters. There's a huge amount of activity going on at that point. And I think, you know, using standard immunofluorescence or microscopy techniques, we're just never going to get to that degree of detail to see, are they localized totally at the synapse or even like, are they moving from the synapse back to the soma? Is Are they getting clogged in the middle of the axon? That's just not, I don't think that's really something we can answer without using like very, very high powered microscopes because there's just no other way to see it. Yeah, super cool. And other proteasomes, I think one of the things that I really struggle to, to kind of get my head around is how the proteasome isn't just a single entity. It can be really diverse and made up of different subunits. Um, do you have a sense for how diverse proteasomes are within neurons, if there are differences? You mentioned neuroinflammation or looking at the proteasome in, in response to inflammation. So I just wondered if the proteasomes are kind of similar between the different cell types of the brain or if there's more diversity there, for example. I think that's a really interesting question. As you said, like the proteasome is made up of different like, regulatory units and core subunits. And I think we're starting to look at that, just seeing is there different expressions? Are they expressed in different areas? And we've gotten some initial data kind of saying, oh, this might be here, this might be there. It has to kind of be expanded on. Um, but it's hard to tell like what the downstream effects of that would be. And I think Inflammation now is such a big thing in neurodegenerative diseases, but kind of how that really affects a neuron, which you know isn't really an inflammatory um, cell, or it shouldn't be at least. So yeah, we're starting to look at does inflammation kind of change what proteasomal subunits are expressed in neurons? Because if it does, I think that's going to be a really, really part of that whole like incredibly complex picture of the interplay between the inflammatory systems and neurons and glia and microglia and all that kind of stuff. It, makes it much more complicated, but I think it was much more interesting. <laughs> it's true, like it wasn't already complicated enough, right? Yeah, I know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know I it's 
I was going to say, I know at some point they're going to be like, why don't you make microglia as well as neurons? Like, <laughs> it's like, let's just figure out this one thing first. Yeah, one thing first, <laughs> and then we'll, then we'll move out and expand. Brilliant. Well, I'm, I'll come back to you in a second, but Danny, I wondered if you could maybe tell us a little bit about your, your research. So I focus in, in microglia, the oh. inflammation <laughs> pathway in microglia, um, and how this UPS system... Um, so the UPS system is um, formed by different subunits, as previously said, and when there's some cell stress, such as aggregates or even LPS, um, you have different subunits substituting this complex. So um, first of all, I'm looking at how the different subunits play a role in the progression of inflammation and how these subunits um, control the, the way, which way inflammation goes. And if we're able to actually um, understand the, the pathway, the inflammatory pathway and how it is controlled by the UPS, and perhaps we can find targets for these particular um, protosome subunits um, to either decrease inflammation, if that is what's causing the neurodegeneration, um, or perhaps we can target subunits to um, enhance um, degradation. Excellent. And I think, so the proteasome, I guess, what little I know about it in kind of its function in the immune system, it must have really important roles in things like antigen presentation and things like that within within the immune system. Is that the case? Yes, so kind of, it is. Yeah. Um, so when there's um, a, um, a stress such as interferon gamma or something like that, then you have the immunoproteasome subunits upregulated. And once you have the immunoproteasome, that's really what's going to get you that um, degradation for like the most optimal um, peptides for antigen presentation. Super, thank you. And what sort of models are you using to, to study within microglia? Is this using in vivo models or is it also um, stem cell derived cell types that you're using? Yeah, so I've, I'm first starting in just established cell lines, um, uh, like BB2, which is a microglia. Um, but um, actually, Emma is um, supervising me in the IPS side um, because I also want to study microglia um, derived from patient brains um, in, uh, yeah, to see if these mutations um, affect the degradation or inflammatory pathway. Um, and also, we are... Um, looking to um, collaborate with um, different uh, lab groups that can, um, that can provide us with um, in vivo samples. Um, so brain samples. Oh, amazing, super cool. Um, Lena, can I hand over to you and hear a bit more about your project? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so my main project, um, as I go into a bit earlier, involves studying how post-translational modifications uh, of tau and alpha-synuclein affect uh, their, module, uh, their degradation by the proteasome. And so I am uh, focusing mostly on, mostly on ubiquitination. And so the main question that I want to address uh, with my research is why this kind of post-translational modification that is canonically design, uh, designating proteins for degradation is so prevalent uh, on these proteins when you... Uh, mass spec uh, neurofibrillary tangles or Lewy bodies from um, disease patients. And so this kind of goes into uh, my earlier answer of perhaps uh, earlier on, this kind of uh, modification targets uh, proteins for degradation, but there's some kind of other stress going on in the cell 
And then perhaps uh, because this makes the proteins more prone to aggregation, this is more of a protective sequestration uh, mechanism in the cell as the, the nicest way for uh, the cell to just handle this overload of this amyloid protein if it can't be degraded. Thank you. I had a kind of a general question, which maybe it might be better suited to the end, but I'll ask it now so I don't forget. But I, I think you just said something really nice, which again is one of those big questions in the field about whether these aggregates that we see in the brain could actually be protective. Mm -hmm. And they are kind of sequestering um, more toxic species to kind of lock them away. Um, and with that in mind, the question which... I, I was thinking about is I guess what's on all of our minds is how we can modulate the UPS therapeutically. And do you think that it, it, it would be beneficial to restore activity of the proteasome or increase activity of the proteasome? Or could it be actually detrimental because you might all of a sudden break apart these aggregates and kind of liberate all of these super toxic oligomers? Uh, well, yes, uh, of course, uh, that's the, I, the idea in that kind of sequestration uh, pathway is that the oligomers are just so much more toxic because they're mo more likely to spread to other cells or recruit other monomers uh, to form uh, other aggregates. Uh, and so I, I don't know how to answer that question about reactivating the UPS, but um, there's many papers that have come out recently showing that ubiquitin moieties themselves can stabilize these fibril structures. And so perhaps if they are doing in this kind of acting in this kind of sequestration capacity, uh, they are becoming so stable that they cannot be processed by the proteasome. And then so then that frees them up again to kind of be um, not so harmful in the cell and then allow the proteasome to perhaps try to degrade other things and keep up normal cell function. I should say if anybody else wants to comment on that, you're more than welcome to. It's a tough question to drop on you, Lena, but it's a fantastic answer. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of the biggest challenges, like not just with the UPS system, but with just like Alzheimer's therapies in general. When is the best time to treat? And I think as you said, with the ubiquitin system, I think we'll find through just like basic research or in animal models that there is an optimal time and there will be a point where mm -hmm. you if you start to increase its activity, you could potentially worsen. And I think that's going to be a very difficult thing to translate from an in vivo to some, yeah. just even something in an animal model. I think that's going to be really, really difficult to do. Yeah, I guess with in vivo as well, we have full control over when we intervene. Whereas when we think about translation, we yeah. can't identify really exactly where someone is along that kind of spectrum, which mm -hmm. further complex complicates it. And maybe um, one, I, I don't know if this is a stupid question, but I will ask it anyway. I think we've heard about kind of different cell types. Um, and I'm kind of really interested in the interplay between neurons and, and microglia. So Danny, this might be a question for you. Um, but again, anyone feel free to chip in. Do these abnormal proteins that are forming in neurons, are they always degraded in neurons? Or, you know, if a neuron is stressed and overloaded, can it actually give some of its protein to an astrocyte or to a microglia and say, you know, you deal with it. Is there anything? So I, the reason I ask that is that I'm thinking about some papers that have been published in the field of stroke, looking at mitochondrial damage. And what they, they it's not exactly the same, but what they showed in those papers is that if the mitochondria in a neuron are damaged, 
um, the neighbouring astrocytes can actually replenish the cell with, with kind of healthy mitochondria or take away the damaged mitochondria and degrade it. And I just wondered if there was any kind of support role for, for kind of getting rid of these toxic proteins from other cell types. Um, so I'm not sure about the astrocyte point of view, um, but for instance, um, when neurons have these aggregates and the, neur the neurons are stressed, they um, have more of these inflammatory, um, let's call it um, chemicals um, that actually the microglia is able to sense. So um, there is a level that the, of the stress of the neuron that the microglia can actually phagocytose the neuron. Um, and then these aggregates that were formed inside the um, neurons would be released into the microglia. Um, and then the microglia would become activated, um, increasing all sorts of um, inflammatory targets um, and actually start degrading or um, eating things it shouldn't be eating. Um, wow. That's where you get the neurodegeneration. Okay, that's interesting. So yeah, sometimes this degradation is not a good thing. It's <laughs> chomping away synapses and things like that that shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be gone. Um, so Georgie, finally, can you tell us a little bit about your project, please? Yep. So my project is focused on investigating tau proteostasis in iPSC models of FTD. So um, frontal temporal dementia can obviously be caused by mutations in the mapped gene, um, which is the gene that encodes the tau protein. And these mutations lead to the deposition of hyperphosphorylated tau tangles, which is one of the main hallmarks of FTD tau. And these tangles aren't cleared through proteostasis, which is, as I said earlier, is really implicating um, a failure of protein clearance systems in this disease. So in the lab, I'm differentiating iPSCs into cortical neurons over the course of around 80 to 100 days. And these iPSCs have mutations in the MAP gene. So just to give a, a little bit more detail about their mutations, we have a 10 plus 16 monoallelic and biallelic line, and also a 10 plus 16 biallelic line with a P301S mutation. So 10 plus 16 is a splicing mutation that increases the production of 4R-tau, um, leading to the, the deposition of uh, tau aggregates. And P301S is a missense mutation that makes tau, tau more aggregation prone. So patients with 10 plus 16 or P301S mutations do go on then to develop frontal temporal dementia um, with these hyperphosphorylated insoluble tau tangles. However, the iPSC derived neurons with these mutations do not develop any tau tangles. And what we want to know is why. Why are these iPSC neurons resistant to tau pathology? What are they doing or what have they got that neurons in patient brains don't? And if we can kind of elucidate or find out um, what the, the differences are there, then that would be really beneficial for potentially looking at treatments for um, neurodegenerative diseases and tauopathies. Thank you. Um, so I wonder, just following up on that, one of the... Um, features of IPS derived neurons, I guess, is that they're quite fetal in their identity. Um, so is there anything known or hypothesized about maybe how the proteasome, does the proteasome also have a role in neurodevelopment and how might kind of the proteasome change from this fetal stage to, to the, the point in a person's life when they might be having these aggregates? Yeah, so there are... Um... It, fetal neurons in general tend to have or are thought to have a higher proteostasis activity or a, a 
kind of a more efficient proteostasis pathways in them because um, at that early stage in development, um, proteostasis is really important, especially for turning over things like morphogens, which are really important for neuronal patterning. So proteostasis activity is really high during early development. And then lots and lots of studies have shown in many different animals and many different tissues that proteostasis um, and proteasome activity declines uh, with age. Excellent, thank you. Um, so maybe if I can kind of bring the, the discussion back to, to everyone again, I'm kind of interested to ask a few technical questions perhaps. Um, so I know a few people on the call are using super resolution microscopy. Um, and I wondered if you could maybe again expand on why this technique is, a, is kind of better than traditional live microscopy or just fluorescence microscopy? Uh, sure, I can take that one. Uh, so uh, I don't know too much about other kinds of uh, fluorescence microscopies other than confocal. Um, but so uh, as far as I know, most of those other uh, technologies, they uh, excite the entire sample on your cover slip with a laser to excite the fluorophore so that you can look at this uh, fluorescence. Uh, and because of that, you have uh, excitation of an entire sample, like a, a cell or a whole layer of uh, solution. And so you have a lot of fluorophores that you have excited. And so even if uh, in confocal microscopy, you are trying to take an image in one plane, you have a lot of background just because you have excited all of those other fluorophores. Uh, whereas in turf, because of the, the critical angle that you uh, use with the laser, um, you create this evanescent field about 200 nanometers above the cover slip, uh, which is the only area in which you actually excite fluorophores. And so then you can uh, exclusively excite the fluorophores in that section of the sample. And so then that really improves your signal to background ratio. Uh, and so you can get a very uh, nice image uh, from this specific plane. That's a beautiful explanation for someone who knows nothing about super resolution microscopy, so thank you. Um, is there anything different um, kind of in terms of sample prep and from a technical perspective that is needed to use this or is it, is it just a case of having access to the proper microscope? Uh, so I work mostly with in vitro things, so I'll let the others talk about uh, working with uh, cells. Uh, on this microscope. But for me, there's no, no changes to the, the prep, really. It's just, uh, you have to have access to, yes, this very nice uh, fancy yeah. turf microscope. And I assume they're not cheap. No. <laughs> no, we can't just go away and buy one if we're listening to this podcast and are excited. <laughs> not very easily. <laughs> In terms of like actually what you do, you don't, as Lena said, the standard kind of protocol you don't have to do, uh, change anything, so it's just, your standard um, uh, ICC protocol. For certain things, for certain super resolution, you do have to kind of change one of your buffers and that kind of enables you to do certain super resolution and things. But no, thankfully it, you don't have to do like any kind of huge involved process for this, which I'm quite thankful for. Yeah, that sounds, it sounds quite appealing actually. I always assumed it would involve some sort of complicated sample prep or different culturing conditions so it's kind of nice that it's accessible in that manner and um, are you using i didn't ask actually danny if you're using super resolution in your own studies yeah i am starting to use them i think i started like three weeks ago but i'm getting there and nice easy to learn so far 
Yeah, yeah. As Emma said, it's pretty much um, the same particle. It's just different buffers. And once you get to the microscope, we have different parameters, but it's pretty much the same thing. Super. And Georgie, you're not doing imaging, but I'm sure you can talk. I have the advantage of knowing your project inside out, of course. Um, but I'm sure you can talk or use the opportunity for group therapy to talk a little bit about some of the technical challenges of working with the proteasome. I wonder if you, you want to say a little bit about how you're measuring proteasome activity. Yes. Yeah, so um, in the lab, we've been optimizing an in-gel activity assay, which is pretty much um, the kind of standard bread and butter that, that most people investigating the proteasomes go um, go to. Uh, and yeah, it, it, it has been um, technically challenging, I think, um, it, in the process, if I just explain it a little bit for anyone listening who doesn't know, what you do is you lyse your sample and you run it on a native gel, but that gel you have to um, precast yourself, like the good old days, I guess. And um, uh, yeah, you precast your gel, and it's quite a low percentage. So um, initially, we had lots of problems actually just getting these gels to set. Um, and once you can get past that issue um, and actually run your samples on the gel, um, you, you there there are other problems that that come into play in that the gel is very delicate. Um, but once uh, once the process is complete, you run your native gel, you can then uh, take that gel out of the cassette and you can image it on a UV transilluminator and that will illuminate the three distinct bands. So then three distinct bands, the, the highest molecular weight of those is the doubly capped proteasome with um, two regulatory units. The second highest molecular weight is the singly capped proteasome. And then the, the, at the bottom of the gel, you get the um, illumination of the 20S proteasome. So it is a really cool technique um, if you're interested in comparing the activity of the proteasome in different samples, because it really um, breaks down the activity of um, each different proteasome species within the sample. Super, thank you. And so maybe going back to the individual research projects again, I wonder if maybe everyone could spend a minute or two to tell us perhaps the thing that they're most excited about at the moment. Or, well, you know, what the, that could be something very specific, you know, the ex experiment that you're doing that you're most excited about, or maybe something a bit more general in the field. What do you think the kind of hot topics are, hot topic is at the moment in this area? Um, does anybody want to go first with that? I realise I've put you all on the spot to think about something, but but whoever gets first gets the pick of everything as well, right? So <laughs> That's true. Uh, I don't know, I'll be the brave postdoc and go first. <laughs> uh, I think for my own research, I'm most interested in seeing, like, is there really like a drastic change in localization of the proteasome mm -hmm. between the different regions of a neuron? I think that's going to be really, really fascinating. And when you add aggregates on, where do you see like that biggest change? How quick does it happen? Can you reverse it? That I think is really, really interesting for me at least. And you kind of, in, then in terms of just like the field in general, you guys kind of touched on it earlier. Um, IPSCs are great. I will always think they're the best model that we can use because I did my PhD on them as well. I'm like, no, I've committed to this now. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to keep plowing this field. But there is a disadvantage is that they're quite fetal in nature, which is just a caveat. You kind of have to think about and work around when you're looking at these kind of diseases. So I'm quite interested in, as the field 
will the field be able to like model age a little bit more mm. in neurons or if other labs are looking at that and how will that kind of relate back to my work and kind of use that to complement mine and kind of understand why I might not say see aggregates, but I can, but I'm seeing the same effect when I add aggregates and change proteasome levels. I think for in terms of the field, that's definitely what I'm most interested in. And I would, I'm obviously quite biased, but I would 100% agree that in spite of their caveats, I believe yeah, they're yes, they are the, yeah. um, you know, they do have caveats, all models do. And, yeah, everything and, has a caveat. And that there are only way to have unlimited human neurons in the lab mm -hmm. at the moment. So in spite of all the caveats, I still think there's a lot to be said for that. I think um, the question about age is really an interesting one. And there have been a few papers recently that have bypassed the IPSD, yeah. I, I can't speak, IPSC yeah. stage and done this direct conversion of fibroblasts to neurons. Um, and particularly with things like nucleocytoplasmic transport and um, mitochondrial fitness, they do seem to retain their age very well. Um, so I think, you know, there's a study begging to be done there about proteasome function um, and how it, how it varies, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's also like, a quite critical thing, thing to know just how this system changes just with age yeah definitely. rather than just specifically in neurodegenerative diseases if that we can answer also answer how it's just meant to act I think that will inform our kind of feedback and inform what we think then about where it's going wrong in neurodegenerative diseases excellent yeah I agree completely um Danny what are you most excited about <laughs> I would say this um, liquid-liquid phase separation project I recently started. Um, I think liquid-liquid phase separation would be a hot topic in every single field right now. Um, so basically what... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, could you tell us a bit about what liquid-liquid phase separation is? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so I'm just going to refer to it as LPS from now on. Um, but I think like the most basic way to explain this is if you can imagine um, water mixed in with um, oil, like any oil, um, you, what you would get is a mixture of um, this lipid droplet suspended in water. So in biological terms, if you think of the, the cytoplasm as the water, um, sometimes proteins or even RNA condenses to form droplets that are almost like the liquid droplets you would see in the this water oil mixture. Um, so that is what liquid liquid phase separation is. It's actually two distinct phases in one mixture. Um, so there has been some research. Um, it's not it's not very well established, and definitely the verdict isn't out yet. Um, where you, these aggregates can undergo liquid liquid phase separation. So my project is to understand really why and is the UPS involved in this? Um, so yes, um, I am very excited about this project, mainly because there's not that much, much research into it. And I think the LLPS is such a area of intense investigation now. It's so timely and I agree, you know, it's really important to see how the UPS kind of feeds into that. I suspect that the LLPS could be a subject for the ne next episode of this podcast too. So maybe you find <laughs> yourself hosting that. I would certainly like to listen and learn more. Um, Lena, what, how about you? Um, I am most excited about the 
turf and the super resolution aspect of my project, which I guess is a good answer for this podcast. Um, <laughs> we have a really fantastic uh, postdoc in the lab called Michael Morton, who set up our, one of our microscopes and uh, we're currently building another one together. Uh, and so I've got to, uh, to learn more about this technique in that way. Uh, but also uh, my project involving post-translation modifications, it's definitely not oversubscribed. There are def there's definitely lots of interest in this. Lots of research has already been done on this. And so I'm really excited about studying this because it's very interesting to me, uh, looking at like the different uh, E3 ligases that I have in mind for my project, uh, how this affects aggregation, degradation, but also combining that kind of, in a sense, standard investigation, uh, if I can say that, with this kind of really new, uh, exciting technique, such as turf super resolution microscopy. Uh, I think it'll, it'll make for some really nice papers. I think it will be fascinating. It's really cool that you're building your own microscope. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, no, I think it will be really exciting. And, you know, when I was a PhD student, I was actually working on post-translational modifications to tau in postmortem brain tissue. And, you know, that work is still ongoing with different groups. I think we know... You know, we've got a really good map of different modifications to the tau protein, but we still don't really have a good understanding of why specific modifications are important and how those specific modifications can change the function or indeed change the clearance of tau. Um, so I think this is really fundamental and critical work that you're doing. So, yeah, good luck. Good luck. I'm excited <laughs> to see the results. Um, and Georgie, what about you? Um one thing I think that I'm definitely excited about in terms of my own project um, is hopefully um, getting my hands on some postmortem brain tissue. So we're interested in looking at proteasome activity, obviously in the iPSC neurons um, at different ages throughout development, but also in them iPSC neurons um, with and without the mapped mutations. But I think an extra kind of dimension to that would be to look at the activity of the proteasome in the post-mortem tissue of humans, which then kind of brings things back around to what Emma was saying um, in that it, it'd be interesting to see, is there a difference in proteasome activity in actual um, brain tissue and these uh, iPSC-derived neurons that it might give us a, a small indication of how um, good these models are for modeling um, proteostasis. And also, obviously, we'd like to kind of compare and contrast between um, the map mutations and controls in in the postmortem tissue and also within our iPSC neurons. Amazing thank you I'm very excited to see those results as well and I think that was a gentle reminder for me um, <laughs> that I need to look at your draft MTA I think I've just been called out on, <laughs> on a podcast request. I will do that when we hang up. <laughs> Um, oh well look thanks everyone we're kind of in the last few minutes before we need to stop recording but before we finish I wondered bearing in mind this this podcast talks about science but also about careers I wonder if everyone might have a kind of one line of advice they would give I know we're all at different stages but maybe to someone who was just looking to move in dementia research looking to find a PhD in this area um, what advice would you give them maybe Emma if we start with you again and, and work around the group yeah sure so I would say for anyone kind of like looking to go for a PhD or anything like that, I'd say like the most important thing is like, don't be afraid to kind of like 
if you're applying to a lab, ask to speak to other members of that lab, you'll probably get, and also to kind of directly question the PI of like how they run their lab, what's day-to-day -day like in the lab, you know, do you have fun, you know, all that kind of stuff, because if they're really long days, it's super, super stressful, you know, but it is all worth it in the end. But I think that's an important thing to kind of know the environment you're going to get yourself into and see if it suits you. And if you've got, I think if you've got that, then everything else will kind of like fall into place. I think that's great advice. Uh, Danny? Hey, um, just as it happened with me, uh, don't be put off if you come from a different field. So for instance, um, I was, I have a background in cancer um, for six years and I wasn't even sure if to apply for this lab, although I really wanted to um, study the immune pathways in your generation. I really had no background at all um, in the new neuroscience field. Um, even with LPS, uh, before this, nobody was looking at leukoleukophase abrasion in anything to do with dementia. So anybody, I would say, can actually bring their expertise into this field. So yeah, don't be put off if you've never um, been in this field, because it's certainly fascinating. Absolutely. And we really need the additional hands on deck as well, because dementia mm -hmm. is such a priority problem. So I think having you know, that different skill set and that different perspective. Also, it leads to innovation. So, yeah, it's, it's, we need more people like you moving into the field. Um, Lena? Uh, I would say that I would encourage people to apply for and then accept um, positions in labs where they have, they like a few different aspects mm. of the project. Uh, because obviously uh, everyone knows that uh, whatever topic you sign on to, to study might change around you. Um, so as long as you're interested in dementia research and you're, you're at least slightly in the right area, that's always somewhat safe. But if there's techniques that that lab is uh, very good at that you want to learn, then I think that's always a good backup to have so that in case your topic does change quite drastically, there are things that you're still very excited about. Definitely, I think... Uh, yeah, exactly what you said. You can never predict whether a certain project might just hit a dead end or a roadblock and knowing that you have enough interest in kind of the general field to be able to switch and still be happy within yes. that group, I think is critical. Um, and Georgie, final words of wisdom. Um, something uh, that I think is really important, not necessarily um, if you're kind of looking to get into the field, but if you're already in it and you're an early career researcher, I think that my biggest bit of advice would be not to be scared to reach out to people in other labs and ask for kind of technical advice on how to do things. I think um, in the first couple of years of my PhD, I kind of was very nervous about doing that and ended up spending a lot of time optimizing things that could have been done very quickly if I'd have just reached out and asked somebody for help. And uh, since doing that more recently, I've found that all of the scientists are super friendly. Even if you don't know them on a personal level, people are more than willing to help you out. So yeah, that's my biggest bit of advice. Definitely good advice as well. I think there's no sense reinventing the wheel. If somebody already has a, a protocol that they're willing to hand over to you, then yeah, use those networks and ask for help. For sure. And um, well, we're almost out of time. So it's time to, to kind of wrap things up and draw the show to a close. Um, I'd really like to thank all of the guests today, Georgie, Lena, Danny and Emma. It's been a really fantastic discussion. I've enjoyed listening to it and learning from you a lot. Um, if I can summarise, I guess, the main points, it would be 
be that the proteasome is very important and also very, very complicated. And I think that complexity comes from the proteasome itself, from the multiple subunits that make the complex, the various enzymes that are involved in substrate targeting. There's more complexity from the substrate and how it's modified um, and how what role those different modifications might play in leading to the substrate degradation. Um, there's additional complexity as if we needed more in development versus disease and also between different cell types. I think, you know, we we still, I certainly still sometimes tend to think of things in a neurocentric way. And yet we've heard today how important the proteasome is across all different cell types of the brain. Um, but in spite of that complexity, I think we can be optimistic that we've got really exciting new tools, um, including fancy new microscopy techniques that will give us those insights that we, we really desperately need. Um, so I'll just finish up by saying that if anybody would like to know more about what we've discussed today, there are profiles of all of our guests on the Dementia Researcher website, um, including their Twitter accounts, so you can follow them and, and find out a little bit more. Um, there's also loads of other content, um, blogs, previous podcasts and articles that will be of interest to anyone who's a researcher in the field of dementia. Um, so thank you for listening and please remember to subscribe and like the podcast in whichever app you're listening from today. Um, so thank you and see you next time. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.